Welcome to the Most Important Work Podcast with clinical psychologist, Dr. Jessica Black. Each episode, she uses her background in addictive behaviors and psychological trauma to address common questions and concerns of the loved ones of individuals with substance use disorders. We invite you to visit our website to suggest questions and topics you'd like Dr. Black to address in future episodes. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to bring this episode of The Most Important Work to you, where we're talking about the importance of family recovery, of focusing on your own recovery from your loved one's addiction. I'm talking with one of my mentors and friends, Dr. Dennis Daly, who is a professor of psychiatry and social work at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He has spent the last 30 plus years treating and researching substance use disorders, and he's a pioneer in drawing attention to the children and families who are affected by loved ones' substance use disorder. Oftentimes, we put all of our efforts into helping the person we love who has a substance use disorder. And while this is admirable, it leaves little or no room to focus on what you need. So many people are left feeling hurt, angry, guilty, and emotionally drained. In this interview, Dr. Daly talks about how he feels it's critical to allow yourself to focus on your own recovery from the pain of your loved one's current or past substance use disorder. And recovery doesn't mean that you will no longer struggle with the effects of addiction in your family. Rather, it means that the addiction won't weigh you down as much, that you can have more moments of peace and joy Some things that really stood out in this interview with Dr. Daly is the common experience of loneliness that family members have, a feeling that they lose themselves in trying to address their loved one's addiction. Dr. Daly also talks about how taking care of yourself and addressing your own thoughts, feelings, and actions surrounding a loved one's addiction isn't selfish, rather it can help your family and leave you feeling more hopeful. Dr. Daly? Hi, Jessica, thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. So tell us about your general experience as an addiction professional. Well, I've been in the field of addiction medicine for about 40 years. So I have an extensive background in clinical services that's actually working with people with addiction problems one-to-one or in group therapy or family treatment, uh, working with families, working with people of all ages. I've worked in uh, every type of program imaginable from detoxification units to rehab programs to outpatient to psychiatric programs for dual disorders. So I have an extensive clinical background and I actually still run treatment groups uh, every month so I, mm. I stay connected, which is very important for me. That is. Because I love the work. Uh, Secondly, I've been involved in research for many years, uh, participated in numerous studies when I was at Addiction Medicine Services at Western Psychiatric Hospital. Uh, And I think, very importantly, I've been involved in teaching clinicians for years and years, uh, psychiatric residents, medical students, uh, professionals from all disciplines. So I have a passion to disseminate information 
to people with problems, to families affected by these problems, and to professionals who take care of individuals affected by substance use disorders. That's wonderful. So you have not only the research, the clinical, and then you're disseminating the information that you know from research and your clinical experience, your personal experiences, to other clinicians, both medical and behavioral health folks, and the community families. How did you become interested in children and families who are affected by their loved one's addiction? I became interested for several reasons. One is I grew up in a family with severe alcohol problems. And there's a multiple generation on my father's side, uh, so I've seen the damage that this can have firsthand on myself and siblings. Uh, I also worked in the field of mental health and realized that uh, lots of people with mental health problems have been affected by parent or sibling or loved one who has an addiction. Uh, and then I've also discovered that many problems in our culture, many uh, social problems, are often uh, caused or, or worsened by an addiction problem. I've seen this everywhere. And to be mm -hmm. honest, at first I wanted nothing to do with the field of addiction. <laughs> I, st I actually stayed away from it because of my personal background. And, but I slowly got interested over a number of years. It's almost, if you're really paying attention to individuals who are struggling, which you do, it's unavoidable, right? You said it's everywhere. Individuals who are struggling with mental health problems, many of them were affected by substance use issues in their families, right? Uh, or they're worsened by their own substance use issues. So it's, correct, yeah. yeah. It, you know, it, these are very common problems. You have um, about 10 to 15 percent of our population will have a problem with substances at some point. And, and, and some are much more serious than others. You also have people who just drink too much sometimes, heavy drinking or drug issues. So if you take 20 to 30 million people with problems and everyone affects four or five or six other ones, you have over 100 million people affected by these problems in our country. That's just, it's immense. In your years, you've been working in the substance use field for 30 plus years. How do you feel that uh, the field's conceptualization of children and families, and then, you know, of course, the services directed towards them has changed throughout your career? Yeah, I think, uh, I'm, I'm very concerned that I think the field is paying lip service to the impact on families and members, including children, but not doing enough. Mm -hmm. You have too many programs, too many addiction programs that offer no services at all for families, for children, mm -hmm. nothing for children, very few services for children. And if you look at the last half dozen years with the extreme emphasis on the opiate epidemic, which has been good because we've reached more people as a result, sure. medical professionals, but the focus has primarily been on the drug with the person with the addiction and very little focus on families and hardly anything on children. And I think that's wrong. I think that's a major mistake. I agree. And you talked about how many individuals, adults, that you've seen with mental health problems that, at least in part, were influenced because of their childhood and because their childhood they had substance use issues in their families. And by ignoring it, we're creating more problems. Oh, absolutely. And here's one example. So there's, there's research that shows that if you're a child of a parent with a substance use disorder, you're at risk for having a problem as well. Mm -hmm. You're at risk for depression. 
your risk for anxiety mm -hmm. disorder, mm -hmm. for other disorders, academic problems, medical problems. Um, so that doesn't mean you'll get these problems, it means you are an increased risk. Mm -hmm. You need to pay attention to that because uh, sometimes these problems are hidden. You can mm -hmm. have kids that function very well. They do extremely well in school and sports, but internally on the inside they're suffering and we're not paying attention to this. And at some point that suffering is going to surface and oftentimes it surfaces and like you said, a mental health issue like depression or anxiety or they do things to help them cope with that depression and anxiety and eventually they start using. When we talk about family recovery, in this episode we're talking about um, how family members can focus on their own recovery from their loved one's addiction. What does it mean to recover from your, love, your loved one's addiction? Well, when you think about families and substance use disorders or addiction, you can think about it in several ways. One is, what do, what do we do to help our loved one who has the problem? To engage them in treatment, to support their recovery. And families do a lot of that. They do their best. Uh, and often, they spend most of their time and most of their energy helping their loved one. By family recovery, it means taking a look within, and what do I do to help myself? So if I cover up for my wife's cocaine problem or alcohol mm -hmm. problem, it affects me at work, it affects my behaviors, it makes me feel, it contributes to my depression, what do I do to help myself? So part of it is learning to take care of myself, still help support the person with the problem mm -hmm. as much as I can, to take care of myself or other family members as well. So for example, mm -hmm. if I'm a spouse and our children have been affected, and which they probably are, what do I do to help support my children as well? Because mm -hmm. they internalize some of the effects of parents' addiction. I feel like there's so much in what you just said, right? It's not that you don't want to try your best to help the person who's struggling with an addiction, but you are inevitably going to be affected. Right? And you have to focus on yourself. You cannot help the other person if you yourself are not healthy. It's going to affect your mood. It's going to affect your functioning at work, at home, and all the different roles that you have in your life. And we, as much as we want, right, we can't control another person. So you can try the best to help your loved one, but you can't control whether or not they're going to cut back on their use or stop using. And you also mentioned if there are children in the home, they are going to be affected. And I think that's a really difficult thing for a lot of us to face because we typically, our children are the most important people in our life to us, right? And it's difficult to think that they might be affected, but that they are. And the best thing that you can do for them is to take care of yourself and focus on your own recovery. That's not selfish. It's actually helping your children. It's not selfish at all. It is helping your children. And a child can be affected. We usually think of children being affected negatively by a problem. Mm -hmm. They show problems. They mm -hmm. have trouble in school or with kids, where they're getting in fights or they're smoking marijuana themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids are very good kids. They're not doing these things, but they're struggling on the inside. So there are different ways in which it shows. So everyone in the family is not affected the same way. It right. depends on who it is with the substance use mm -hmm. problem, their behaviors, if they're violent, that has mm -hmm. a different impact than if they're not violent. If they're an absent parent, that has a different impact than if they're an active parent in the child's life. Uh, and what support does the child have? And what internal coping me mechanism, like resilience, do they have as well? So you have some kids that do extremely well no matter what environment they grow up in. Mm -hmm. You have others that are very 
much more vulnerable mm-hmm. to negative outcomes. And you mentioned even for those kids who seem like they may be doing well, they may seem like that to keep the peace at home, or to keep things running smoothly at home. And by helping yourself, then you can be there for them and take some of that burden off that child. So what do you think, you know, we kind of already mentioned it a little bit, but what do you think are some of the reasons that people don't focus on their own recovery? I think several things. I think that we think the problem belongs to the person who has the substance use disorder. Um, I think part of it is that professionals, whether they be addiction professionals or mental health professionals or medical professionals, don't focus on the family system or the mm-hmm. individual members of the family and how they've been affected. So it might be that um, I'm focusing as a therapist or a physician on the patient with the problem and not talking with them about the impact on the family. Uh, clearly, it doesn't matter if it's cancer, it doesn't matter if it's addiction or diabetes or clinical uh, schizophrenia or clinical depression, families are affected. We need mm-hmm. to keep that in mind as providers, but I don't think enough of us do. That's such a great point. I think that, so say your loved one is receiving help, right, for their substance use issues, even then the families and children are often neglected. So what kind of message are we sending to them? We're sending them the message that they're not as important, what they experience isn't as important. Only the person with the addiction, that's the main problem. Well, the other problem is sometimes we're so obsessed with the drug, we focus on the drug and not the addiction. So what happens is we're focusing on uh, Opana, we're focusing mm-hmm. on Oxycontin. And clearly, history shows that if you take away one drug, another drug replaces it. And people with substance problems often use multiple substances. So it's best not to think about these as drug problems, but think of these as people problems yes. that we refer to as substance use disorders. I think you're so right. Now, I remember one of the first times I met you, you mentioned that, and that really hit home with me, right? Say we start to address, you know, there, as you mentioned, there's so much attention now on the opioid epidemic, for example, right? And that's good, right? We need to address it. And at the same time, that there are underlying factors that led someone to start to have a substance use disorder, right? And if it's not opioids, it could be methamphetamines or alcohol or whatever it is at the time and whatever's on the market and readily available and social factors, but we need to address the underlying substance use disorder. And going back to your point about not ignoring families and children, and you mentioned briefly in there about, you know, if someone in the family has cancer or something like that. And I know that children's hospitals have lots of resources now for children when a parent is sick with cancer, for example. And there is very little that I know of, if anything, when children have a parent with an addiction. Very few program, very few addiction treatment programs mm-hmm. specialize and take care of people with problems have programs for children. Some some programs like rehabilitation programs often have family education evening or family education weekend. And so they may have educational programs, or mm-hmm. therapy programs for multiple families together. But very few offer services for, for children. And you know, and I recall uh, when I had a weekend program, a residential program years ago, we had a nurse who was interested in kids, so we let families bring in children who were seven or older uh, to our weekend program. And, you know, we, we learned from them. We learned a lot. And 
there was a, uh, a period of time in which we broke up the group into discussions about how the family was affected by substance use disorders. The children had their own group and they went with the nurse. And we get back together as a large group and the adults would share their experiences. And one time a little boy about 10 asked me if he could share and he talked to the adults in the audience and there were about eight kids that day about what it was like for them, how scary it was, how confusing it was, how upset they were because of dad's addiction. Mm -hmm. And it had a big impact on the, uh, the participants. And I think what that showed is that um, typically we, we do know these affect children, but mm -hmm. they don't have they don't have a uh, they don't have a mechanism by which they can be identified or encouraged to share or get help and support for themselves. Right, right. There's not the mechanism in place, and so. There are lots of reasons that family members may not be focusing on their own recovery. One is there's not the mechanism in place, right? Professionals don't often directly address them. So they have these messages, they receive messages that they're not as important that the person with the substance use disorder, that's the main problem or the only problem. And um, also, they may think that it's selfish to focus on their own recovery, that they need to be focusing on this person with the substance use disorders when like you said it's not selfish at all to focus on your own recovery, and that can only help other people in the family and other loved ones. Well, if you look at compassion, it's easier to be compassionate towards other people than yourself, self-compassion. I think that's relevant to family and recovery. I'm going to focus on you. And mm -hmm. lost to the other person. We do it with good intentions because we love you. We want to care for you. We want yeah. to help you. And I've seen people do as much as possible to help a loved one. Mm -hmm. And often it helps, but not always. There are mm -hmm. cases in which no matter what you do, it may not affect the other person. And that's a hard reality to face because mm -hmm. we think that I haven't done enough. Mm -hmm. I should have done this. What's wrong with me? We blame ourselves if the other person doesn't get well, or if they overdose and die, that I, I should have caught this, I should have done something different. Right. When we know that we only have, we don't have control over another person, and it's dangerous when we get totally lost in the other person. Compassion is, is wonderful to have for them, and it's necessary. <laughs> Right, to have healthy human relationships, but we also have to have compassion for ourselves. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's a young psychologist who's written a lot about self-compassion that mm. I've often uh, recommended uh, to individuals affected by someone in their family yeah. they take a look at that because they do so much for others, they forget to take care of themselves. Yeah. You know, we, we kind of get lost in the process. I think you're right. So. As a clinician, I feel like I come across people who make a decision that they want to make a change in their life. So say they want to start having more self-compassion, that they've recognized that their loved one's addiction has caused problems for them and they need to focus on their own recovery now from that, dealing with that addiction. But I think a lot of times people feel stuck because they don't know how to start that process, right, once they make that decision. And you have lots of workbooks and other information for family members. Um, you recently revised a family recovery goal checklist to help family members begin the process of their own recovery. So can you tell us a little bit about where family members can start? 
I, I think several things. One is um, learn whatever you can. You can learn from reading books, workbooks, pamphlets, YouTube videos. You can go online. There's a lot of organizations that um, put materials online. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in learning about drug abuse, go to National Institute of Drug Abuse. If you're interested in what's going on with families, mm -hmm. partnership for drug-free children. There's all kinds of good organizations, number one. Secondly, I think it's good to get support and help from other people who've gone through what you've been through. And you could do it informally. It could be a friend, it could be a neighbor, another mm -hmm. family member who's been affected. Or it can be with a mutual support program. Like, uh, some are well-known, like Al-Anon, mm -hmm. they're available throughout the country. Uh, others are more regional, like in Western Pennsylvania, we have Sage's Army, we have mm -hmm. Bridge and Hope, we have My New Leaf. And uh, I was looking recently at a survey from Elanon, they do a survey every three years. Mm. And the people that participate will report as a result of my participation in Elanon, which is a support group where people help each other out, that they function better, they feel better mentally, they feel better physically, they do better. At work, they miss less work. They get better evaluations at work, and I think that speaks to a reduction of the stress. And what, what I think is important, um, there are many different pathways to recovery. Uh, one pathway is the twelve steps, which mm -hmm. is part of A, Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. But the first word in step one is we, not I, and that speaks to the fellowships. Getting help and support from others is very valuable. The other side of that is. Once you're doing well in recovery, you have other people. Mm -hmm. You have to do this all the time. I think being a family member where you love someone who has a substance use disorder can be so isolating. It can be so lonely. And so by reaching out to friends or, like you said, a mutual support group like Al-Anon, you feel less alone just by being in the group, just by physically being there, sitting with another person, right? And then you mentioned earlier that you feel like, and I agree with you, that it's easier to give compassion to someone else. So when you're there, you're receiving compassion from other people and you can give it to other people. And then once you achieve your own recovery from your loved one's addiction, you are able to give that gift to someone else. And that makes you feel good <laughs> and keeps keeps you going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, because if, if you work with people who've been through what you've been through, they know what it's like to feel guilty that you haven't done enough or you've done things wrong or feel shameful that something affected about me. Or to feel very angry and furious. I'm mm -hmm. so angry, I could, oh, I could do whatever. Right. They understand right. that. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to judge you. Or if you are so despondent, uh, like one guy talked about telling his son, uh, I want you to put the social security number on your uh, get tattooed so when you die, we can recognize you. Uh, that's an awful statement, but that speaks to his pain. It speaks to his anguish. It speaks to right. his worry about losing his son. Right. And the people who don't understand, I think a little bit, you know, off his rocker, but other people can understand that, that it's an awful mm -hmm. experience. Or if you've lost one, you know, there's some, some programs like the, the Bridge to in Western Pennsylvania has a grief group too because mm -hmm. too many people have lost loved ones to yes. overdoses or other reasons related to addiction yes. and they help each other out. Yeah.
No, I think that's a great point. And um, when you lose someone because of substance use, I think that sometimes family members and loved ones feel a certain sense of stigma that they're almost not allowed to feel grief in the same way as someone else who's lost a child or, you know, a partner or whoever it is. And that's not true. <laughs> and by going to these groups and people who really understand it and deeply understand it, you feel less alone. Yeah, I recently wrote a couple articles on grief and I titled those Grief Has No Expiration Date. Mm-hmm. Because in interviewing mothers who lost adult children, one talked about how years later she's adapted to and adjusted, but there's a hole in her heart. And it's not like you get over grief in six months or nine months or one year. Yeah. It sticks with you for years and years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's no expiration. I lost a wife to cancer 15 years ago. I always have a hole in my heart. Even though mm-hmm. I got married and have mm-hmm. life now, there's mm-hmm. a part of me that died and is missing. Right. So, so grief doesn't have an expiration date. It sticks mm-hmm. with us. And I think the other thing that's important, too, is that when we get involved with others and we take care of ourselves, we have a sense of hope that things can get better and mm-hmm. that we have a role in making them get better. Yes. Yes. And I think that's, I think that's a great place to sort of wrap up our interview, um, that things can get better. And by focusing on our own recovery, that's when we start to get a sense of that. Is there anything else that you wanted to leave listeners with? Yeah, I would just say that never give up, be persistent, that change comes slowly sometimes, other times more quickly, and we're looking for progress, not perfection, mm-hmm. and we don't have to do it alone. I mean, that's one thing I've learned in my personal life, and I've seen my professional life. If we don't do it alone, we just do a whole lot better, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people out there willing to help and support us friends, family, professionals, other people in recovery. Uh, the other thing I would say is I've seen many, many people make significant changes and I've seen people turn their lives around. So the good news is a lot of good does happen with recovery. Thank you so much, Dr. Daly, um, for being here today to talk about the importance of focusing on your own recovery from your loved one's addiction and emphasizing everyone has their own path, reach out to other people. Um, That can really decrease loneliness, it can increase hope, and maybe even someone listening to this today feels less lonely because of it. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, thank you for the invite. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to offer diagnosis or treatment of any medical or psychological condition. All treatment decisions should be made in partnership with your healthcare professional.